welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Charles Van Doren, Herbert Stemple, and the American Quiz Show scandal of the 50s. Please note, in future episodes, I will have information about the release of a novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started. In the mid-50s, Americans suddenly became enthralled with a new form of television, the quiz show. Although this type of programming originated in 1940s radio, television greatly expanded the audience of these competitions when one CBS show, The $64,000 Question, became an instant and dominant ratings hit in its Tuesday evening time slot. The show, sponsored by the cosmetics manufacturer Revlon, had the potential to award any contestant ultimately successful enough a grand prize of $64,000, a massive amount of money at the time. During the 1955-1956 season, it became the number one rated show in America, eclipsing such stalwarts as I Love Lucy, The Ed Sullivan Show, and Dragnet. This success continued, spawning a spin-off in 1956, The $64,000 Question, and a typical scramble from other networks to produce their own game show content. One of these shows, called 21, premiered on September 12, 1956. Fashioned after the card game 21, or Blackjack, contestants chose questions with a numeric value attempting to reach a total of 21 points. The show never reached the annual Nielsen ratings heights of the $64,000 question, but it did crack the list of the 30 most popular television programs of 1957, occasionally one of the country's top 10 most popular shows on a weekly basis. Much of the show's popularity was generated by a single contestant, Charles Van Doren, who first appeared on November 28, 1956. Van Doren was a member of a very prominent family of academics and writers. His father, Mark Van Doren, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, journalist, and a professor of English at Columbia University. His mother, Dorothy, a novelist and magazine editor. His uncle, Carl Van Doren, was the author of a 1939 Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Benjamin Franklin. At the time of his appearance on 21, Charles was a mere English instructor at Columbia. While he excelled at academics from an early age at both Manhattan's High School of Music and Art and St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, his postgraduate career was somewhat unfocused. Initially, he pursued a master's degree in both astronomy and mathematics, 
probably wanting to differentiate himself from his prominent relatives. Eventually, he began studying for a Ph.D. in English, which he received in 1959. He spent some of the early 50s traveling through Europe, and it was his wish to finance further travel that precipitated his appearance on a television game show. Although several versions of just how he came to the attention of Barry Enright Productions, the producers of 21, have appeared over the years, Van Doren himself claimed that he met an employee of this firm, Al Friedman, at a dinner party in Greenwich Village. Friedman quickly determined who Van Doren was and was familiar with his prestigious family ties. He convinced the college instructor to take the exam for 21, noting his current salary and the potential to make many times that amount on a television game show. Friedman also explained that his bosses, Jack Barry and Dan Enright, had a problem with the current champion of the show, an individual named Herbert Stemple. A quintessential New Yorker from Forest Hills, Queens, had a rumpled, crude appearance and a quirky, self-assured personality that was becoming irritating to viewers, threatening ratings, and alarming the sponsor of 21, Geritol, the infamous dietary supplement. Geritol's sales had skyrocketed during 21's ascendance, but Stemple was especially galling to Geritol CEO Matthew Matty Rosenhaus. Comparatively, Van Doren was a telegenic, well-spoken, sophisticated scion of one of the most intellectual families in America. Despite some misgivings, especially from his fiancée, he agreed to appear. Although he did not even own a television, he soon found himself on the soundstage of the program, initially to observe several shows from the wings and eventually to compete against Stemple, still the current champion. Jack Barry's introduction was inaccurate, but certainly impressive. He teaches music at Columbia University and was a student at Cambridge University in England, and his hobby is playing the piano in chamber music groups. Barry also referred specifically to Van Doren's father and his literary stature and background. Stemple had performed well against previous challengers, typically winning easily during his six-week reign on the program. But Van Doren proved to be a formidable opponent, and both games of 21 ended in a tie, which meant that the two contestants would return the following week. The showdown between the two men continued on December 5, 1956, Stemple having accumulated $66,500. The first show again resulted in a 21-21 tie. The tension built as the dashing college educator tried to pull off the upset. But in the fourth game, Herb Stemple pulled out to a 16-0 lead and seemed on the brink of successfully moving on. 21 had an interesting wrinkle in which the contestants were asked after the second round of questions if they wished to stop the game. Because they were in a soundproof booth, they did not know their opponent's score and were instructed not to discuss specifics when their microphones and headsets were turned back on. With a 16-0 margin, both contestants were asked if either wished to stop. Stemple would have easily won, but he had no way of knowing that he was way ahead. He decided to continue, and in the next round, Van Doren first answered a three-part, ten-point movie question about the film On the Waterfront. Now it was Stemple's turn, and he was asked, What movie won the Oscar for the best picture of 1955? Contestants selected the degree of difficulty of their questions on camera, and the points assigned ranged from 1 to 11. 
Stemple had selected a question worth five points, and a correct answer would have given him the victory. It was a seemingly easy question, but instead of giving the right answer, Marty, starring Ernest Borgnine, Stemple shockingly and erroneously answered, On the Waterfront. In the Robert Redford-produced film Quiz Show, this question was Stemple's downfall and ended his championship, but in actuality, it merely reduced his score by five points to 11. The drama was increased as Stemple rallied for yet another tie game, answering an extremely difficult 10-point question on Columbus and his discoveries, forcing a fifth and decisive outcome. Game 5 hinged on a question concerning journalist William Allen White, his nationally famous Emporia Gazette, and the name of his column. When Charles Van Doren correctly identified, what's the matter with Kansas, and Stemple failed, and both contestants subsequently correctly identified four of Henry VIII's wives and their fates, Van Doren had an 18-10 to 10 lead. As this was the end of the second round, both men were given the opportunity to stop the game, not knowing the score. Van Doren did so, and Herb Stemple was defeated. This was the beginning of Charles Van Doren's three-month tenure on 21. He appeared on 14 shows, played 28 games, and was actually involved in 14 tie games, an outcome which seemed improbable. Ties, however, greatly added to the suspense as the points accrued increased in value after a tie game. Charles Van Doren finally met his match in Vivian Nearing, an attorney and the wife of a contestant that Van Doren already had defeated. He was tripped up on a question involving obscure current ruling monarchs, failing to identify King Baudouin of Belgium. But along the way, Van Doren became an overnight celebrity. He won $128,000 on the program and appeared on the cover of the February 11, 1957 edition of Time magazine with an accompanying glowing profile. His appearance and popularity was so impressive that in April of 1957, he was offered a three-year contract by NBC at $50,000 a year. This for an individual who was paid $4,700 annually to teach at Columbia. Van Doren was initially ineffectual at NBC, first as a writer of radio news breaks and then as a correspondent in Washington, D.C., where he was shunned by his more experienced and lesser compensated co-workers. Accordingly, Van Doren was reassigned to network personality Dave Garraway's Sunday Wide Wide World Show, a relatively sophisticated cultural affairs program. Van Doren did well in this spot, eventually hosting the show in Garraway's absence, and was ultimately added to the staff of Garraway's main platform, The Today Show. He was given five minutes every hour to discuss various literary and cultural happenings. Van Doren would routinely read a poem and discuss its author. Viewers liked this unusual offering, and most importantly, Garraway, one of America's first daytime major television stars, loved it. Charles Van Doren continued to be a busy man. His workday started at 5 in the morning, making his way to Rockefeller Center and his live appearance for the network and subsequent preparations and writing for upcoming Today programming. In the afternoon, he took the subway to Columbia, keeping his other job as an instructor in English. He later claimed that his celebrity did not translate it to prominence at the school, and during this time period, he continued efforts towards securing his Ph.D., Newly married, he also had a young daughter. With a newfound celebrity job, a respectable profession, and more money than he knew what to do with, 
Charles Van Doren seemed to have a bright future indeed. But below the surface, Van Doren, the producers of 21, and many of its contestants were concealing a dark secret, a secret that would have national repercussions for the television industry and, once exposed, shocked the American public. The film quiz show focuses on the efforts of one person, Richard Goodwin, played by Rob Morrow, a congressional investigator whose supposed efforts single-handedly brought the quiz show scandal to public attention and congressional oversight. In fact, long before Congress or Goodwin got involved, New York newspapers and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office were already investigating rumors and allegations swirling around several quiz show productions. But if a confluence of many different individuals and events eventually snowballed into headlines in the New York tabloids and legal scrutiny, there was one individual who initially did become tenacious and irrepressible in attempting to expose the game show scandal. Back in Forest Hills, things had not gone well for Herbert Stemple. His appearance on 21 should have been a life-changing event and a stepping stone to prominence and further achievement. But... For a variety of reasons, it hadn't turned out that way. Stemple's background was the complete inverse of Charles Van Doren. An only child and a three-year-old when his father died, Stemple was raised by his mother, who left him alone in their Bronx tenement while she worked during the day. An excellent student with an IQ of 170, Stemple did graduate from the academically demanding Bronx High School of Science. Like many Americans, he joined the Army in 1942 and remained in the military for eight years, eventually working in military intelligence. He finally left the service in 1952 to enroll at the City College of New York. While a student, Stemple survived on money provided by a trust fund set up for his wife, Toby, the daughter of a successful hosiery manufacturer. After Toby's father died, the trust fund was administered by Toby's brother, and Herb Stemple chafed under the financial control asserted by his wife's family. During his eight-week stint, Stemple was promised by Enright that Stemple would be subsequently hired by Barry Enright as a research associate for $250 a week, get an appearance on The Tonight Show with Steve Allen, and appear as a contestant on another game show in development called High Low. None of these things materialized. And as early as February 1957, after Dan Enright personally and coldly rebuffed him, Stemple, having already lost most of his earnings from the show to a criminal swindler pitching a Florida horse racing syndicate betting scheme, began to approach various New York newspapers with a startling story. He claimed that his entire appearance on 21 was completely choreographed and that he was given all of the questions and answers in advance. Several journalists extensively interviewed Stemple, but because none of his accusations could be corroborated and fearful of a libel suit from NBC and other interested parties who vehemently denied any wrongdoing, they did not publish anything about these accusations. It was not until August of 1958 that an individual involved in the rigging of another relatively minor game show called Dotto came forward to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to lodge a complaint against the producers of that show. This contestant, Edward Hilgemeyer, claimed to investigators that as a standby contestant on the show, he became suspicious during rehearsals and backstage accidentally discovered questions and answers written down in advance in the notebook of another contestant. 
When he went to the producers of the show and complained, they paid him $1,500 to keep silent and got him to sign papers waiving any additional right to sue. The DA's office was initially unenthusiastic about pursuing the allegations, not believing that under current laws a crime was even committed. But Hilgemeyer was also in touch with a reporter with the New York Post, who subsequently wrote about the abrupt cancellation of Dotto and mentioned that a complaint from a former contestant was filed with the FCC. Dotto was canceled without explanation on August 16, 1958, when Hilgemeyer also complained to Colgate, the show's sponsor, who in conjunction with CBS privately confirmed the allegations. This article came to the personal attention of venerable DA Frank Hogan, and Hogan, aware of the potential public response to such a scandal and also involved in a Senate primary campaign, urged Joseph Stone to vigorously pursue any and all allegations concerning quiz show rigging. Stone would then extensively interview several of the contestants of Dotto, and while engaged in this process, was again contacted by Hogan. The district attorney then suggested he interview another contestant from a completely different quiz show who wanted to lodge a separate complaint. Accompanied by a New York Journal American reporter, this new complainant was Herbert Stemple. The Journal American did not want to go out on a limb on their own, but now they could merely write about quiz show fixing allegations being investigated by the DA and discussions with an unnamed former star contestant of 21. In late August 1958, these allegations exploded on the Journal American's front page. Herb Stemple's allegations truly were explosive, and they described behavior that was much more insidious than the mere hinting that went on on Dotto. Stone and his assistants spent over two days with Herb Stemple, meticulously interviewing him about his entire 21-show experience. It began when he wrote a letter on September 26, 1957, to Barry Enright Productions asking to be a contestant on 21. Stemple had watched the show, and in his letter he suggested that his photographic memory, academic and military background, and ability to answer the majority of questions that he observed on TV quiz shows would make him an ideal participant. Only days later, Stemple was contacted and asked to come to Barry Enright Productions to take a formidable 363-question test. He correctly answered 251 questions, the best score achieved up to that time, and was then personally interviewed for two hours by Dan Enright and other 21 show producers. On October 16th, Enright called Stemple and requested that he again meet with him, but Herb responded by explaining that he was babysitting as his wife was at a movie. Enright then got directions to Stemple's home and within 30 minutes arrived in person. He brought with him an attache case that contained various index cards and he began to read them to Stemple, assigning a point value to each card. When Herb did not know an answer, which was rarely, Enright gave it to him. They proceeded through a half-dozen topics, and Enright then concluded by asking Stemple if he would like to make a lot of money. When Herb said yes, Enright responded by saying, Play ball with me, kid, and you'll win $24,000, just like that. Both men then proceeded to Herb's wardrobe closet, where the producer pulled out a worn and shabby suit that had actually been owned by Stemple's father-in-law. He then picked out a blue shirt with a worn collar and told Stemple to wear both of these articles of clothing when he appeared on the show. He also specifically instructed Stemple to get a military-style crew cut and to even wear a watch that was so cheap its ticking was literally audible. The meeting concluded when Stemple's wife returned from the movies, 
briefly met Enright, and the producer quickly left instructing Herb to come to his office the next day. There he met personally with Enright, who not only gave him specific questions and answers, he minutely coached the contestant on how he should behave, the emotions he should evince, even when and how he should stutter, close his eyes, or bite his lip. He was told to mop his brow with a handkerchief, but not to wipe it as this would smear his makeup. Although he was to be referred to by Jack Barry as Herb, he was always to refer to the MC as Mr. Barry, the only contestant ever instructed to do so. That night, Stemple proceeded to NBC Studios at Rockefeller Center, where he made his first appearance on 21, defeating his first opponent by a score of 18 to 0 and winning $9,000 in the process. For five weeks, Stemple continued to win. Before every show, he met with Dan Enright and not only reviewed every question he would receive, but also every emotion and even the vocal intonation of his responses. His performance, as that was what this really was, was even timed so that the show would not disrupt the live schedule of commercials. During his tenure, an incident occurred that should have at least raised suspicion amongst the viewers. Stemple was asked during his rehearsal about the takeoff location of the Enola Gay when it dropped the atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. He correctly answered Tinian, an island in the Marianas chain, but was overruled by Enright, who claimed that Okinawa was the correct answer. When Stemple protested, Enright testily responded that his researchers could not possibly be wrong. When asked the question during an actual game, Stemple responded with the answer given to him, and Jack Barry accepted Okinawa as correct. Public response was immediate, and the producers had to acknowledge the mistake in a subsequent show, explain the error by claiming that Barry mistakenly read an answer from another question about islands, and bring back the losing contestant from a game that was suddenly declared a tie, so that Stemple could defeat him again in yet another choreographed program. It certainly should have at least seemed odd that Herb would answer a relatively easy question incorrectly. The game would be ruled a tie, and that Barry even accepted his initial answer as correct. Despite such missteps, Stemple continued on until his winnings prompted Enright to get him to agree to another disingenuous aspect of the program. He was coerced to sign an agreement that stipulated that he would take a lesser amount of actual payment as opposed to what he allegedly won on the air. If he won between sixty dollars and $80,000 on the air, he was to agree to actually receive $40,000. It was explained to him that the show's sponsor, Geritol, only allotted $10,000 for prize money per show, and Barry Enright could not exceed that amount. Stemple was not directly told, but he sensed that if he refused to retroactively agree to the deal, he would quickly be defeated. It was in this environment that Stemple continued playing until November 28, 1956, when he first faced off against Charles Van Doren. After the first three games ended in ties, Stemple suspected that Van Doren was also being coached, but Enright never discussed how Stemple's opponents were treated, and Herb never asked. His suspicions proved prescient when, on the day before his December 5th showdown with Van Doren, Enright sat down with Stemple and told him essentially that the show needed a new face, that ratings were declining, and that Herb would have to go. Stemple initially suggested that he be allowed to play Van Doren in an actual unchoreographed game as a kind of intercollegiate test of skill between City College of New York and Columbia, but Enright refused. 
He reminded Stemple of his potential job as a paid researcher, and hints about other potential rewards were too big of an inducement. He did as he was told, leaving the show with announced winnings of $49,500 reduced from $69,500 as a result of his loss to Van Doren. Based on his already signed agreement, he was to actually receive 40000 Although Stemple claimed he had told a few acquaintances of exactly what was going on throughout his appearances, and even on the eve of the show in which he lost, he told his barber, doctor, and druggist that he would be taking a dive that night, he had no physical evidence to back up his claim. Dan Enright had refused to give him copies of the agreements he signed and even refused to confirm or even discuss whether Jack Barry, conveniently never present during their show preparations, was aware of the fix. Still, Investigator Stone understood the potential volatility of the situation, and he immediately personally briefed his boss, the district attorney. Frank Hogan was also skeptical of Stemple, but for an additional reason. He was a prominent alumnus of Columbia University, knew Professor Mark Van Doren personally, and had even met Charles Van Doren. He found it hard to believe that someone of the younger Van Doren's background was capable of such duplicity, but at a formal news conference on August 28th, Hogan did acknowledge that both Dotto and 21 were under investigation. However, he also added that as yet, the allegations were still unproven. On August 29th, NBC released a statement that they had already investigated wrongdoing on 21 a year earlier, found nothing, and added that major newspapers had also investigated the program and also found nothing amiss. NBC and Barry Enright also privately attempted to squelch the investigation by meeting personally with Joseph Stone. Barry and Enright were accompanied by two attorneys, including John McKay, a partner with the firm of John Cahill, a former federal prosecutor for the District of New York and a close personal friend of Frank Hogan. McKay, retained by NBC, aggressively confronted Stone by stating that the publicly unnamed star contestant was Stemple, that his allegations were false, and that NBC and Barry Enright stood to lose a great deal if these charges were not immediately dispelled. Barry Enright already had sold 21 to the network for several million dollars, and the program would be fatally compromised if public speculation was further fueled by the DA's office. Dan Enright then continued, stating that Stemple started to unravel mentally after his loss to Van Doren, that he repeatedly visited him in the production company's offices to discuss his personal difficulties, and when Enright would make no promises regarding future employment, Stemple, on March 1, 1957, showed up at his office with a friend, Bertram Hacken. The duo brandished an affidavit that detailed Stemple's 21 appearances and allegations of a fix. Hacken demanded $50,000 and proclaimed that if the money wasn't paid, the statement would go to the newspapers. Enright stalled and ultimately cajoled Stemple into contrition, and during several subsequent meetings got Herb, after vague promises to appear on a new game show, High Low, to sign a document that specifically stated that he, that he had never been given questions in advance and that he had signed said document of his own free will. Enright also got Stemple to discuss his demand for an additional $50,000, getting the former contestant to admit on a secretly recorded audio tape that this was blackmail. When Stone asked Enright why Stemple thought he could succeed in such a scheme, Enright again vehemently denied any assistance to Stemple before the contestant's appearances. Joseph Stone met again with Herb Stemple to try and obtain some tangible evidence to prove who was lying and who wasn't. 
Stemple's story took another unexpected swerve when he claimed that Enright advanced him payments against winnings on the show during his appearances, an indication that the show was fixed, as theoretically, according to the rules of the game, Stemple could have lost all of the money if he performed poorly enough. Under a rigged outcome, Stemple could be guaranteed to leave with certain amounts. But, in another indication of his instability, Stemple also claimed that he had turned over most of the prize money to another resident of his Forest Hills apartment building, a con man and swindler named Richard Lammy, who had since absconded. Through a combination of flattery and intimidation, Lammy, a convicted criminal, had convinced Stemple to invest in a purported horse racing betting proposition in Florida, and then disappeared. Enright eventually provided Stone's investigators with a copy of the tape discussion in which Stemple appears contrite and clearly admits his financial and mental difficulties. Enright refuses to lend him money, but still dangles eventual employment and another game show appearance and even payment for psychiatric treatment, but rejects an outright loan. Stemple would continue to communicate with Enright until May 1957, when 21 was sold by Barry Enright to NBC, and the game show producer explained that future employment was up to the network and out of his hands. After his meeting with the DA's office, Enright must have sensed that the prepayments would become an issue because he admitted to reporters paying Stemple $18,500 in advance, claiming that Stemple threatened to leave just as ratings were starting to improve, and he took a calculated risk. Enright also lied by claiming he had told investigators about the advance and even provided canceled checks. In fact, Stone was getting the runaround from Enright and his attorney, who promised specific financial records, but thus far had only provided excuses. In early September, the ever-burgeoning quiz show scandal was fueled by additional newspaper accounts of contestants on the highly rated $64,000 challenge charging that they had lost as a result of fixed contests. Subsequently, DA Frank Hogan decided against the advice of investigators who believed the investigation was not thorough enough yet to take the matter before a grand jury. For Hogan, this was a politically expedient move. He could avoid questions from the press about the investigation, citing the fact that the matter was now before a grand jury and ethically he could not comment, and he would leave any decision about indictments to this entity. In the heat of a political campaign, Hogan did not want to alienate some of the powerful interests behind the television industry, but he also did not want to be seen as limiting the investigation in the event of any additional revelations that prompted public outrage. Publicly, Barry Enright continued its aggressive public relations posture with a live comment from Jack Barry on 21's September 9th program. He expressed an explicit denial of any contestant rigging by either Dan Enright or himself. He concluded by stating that the truth will out. I know it will, for we have not betrayed your trust in us. We never would. Following the announcement of the grand jury, the Lorillard Tobacco Company pulled its sponsorship of the $64,000 challenge and the show was canceled. The grand jury convened on September 17, 1958, assigned to Judge Mitchell Schweitzer, as it turned out, a fateful assignment. It spent the first month of its existence hearing from individuals concerned with the program Dotto, which, while not as prominent as some of the other shows under suspicion, was still the highest-rated daytime game show on television. 
Over 40 witnesses provided detailed information, either as former contestants or individuals involved in the show's production, which detailed the entire process that led up to the show's cancellation at the hands of its sponsor, Colgate. In late September, Assistant D.A. Stone was diligently sending out subpoenas to former contestants on 21 to ramp up grand jury testimony concerning the allegations about this program. Frequently, the individuals thus contacted or their attorneys would reach out to the D.A. to discuss their potential testimony. Some were trying to avoid any public scrutiny, but others felt they had sensitive information they wanted to discuss. The latter was the case with James Snodgrass, a former contestant who was about to reveal that he had actual physical evidence that his appearance on 21 was completely rigged. Snodgrass did well enough on the contestant test to be selected for a dress rehearsal of 21 in early April of 1957. He was asked to meet with Albert Friedman, who then, behind the closed door of his office, told him that he was to appear on the April 22nd show. Friedman then asked the contestant a set of four questions, telling him also what the point values of the questions would be. He casually explained that the producers did not want Snodgrass to look bad on his first appearance, and this would ensure his success. Snodgrass was surprised but did not object, determining that his questions neatly added up to scores of 21. At worst, he would tie both games. On that evening's broadcast, that is exactly what happened, with Snodgrass completing two draws against the then-champion Henry Bloomgarden by identical scores of 21-21. to This necessitated a return match. Before the next program, Friedman sat down with Snodgrass again and reviewed a scenario where the ties would continue for additional programs. The contestant came to realize that the initial explanation was a ruse and the game was completely rigged, especially after Friedman explained that he was to eventually lose but would get to leave with several thousand dollars, enough to fund Snodgrass's pursuit of a career as an artist. Snodgrass was wary and alarmed enough to invoke a process he learned as an aspiring screenwriter. He typed up the questions, categories, and point totals that Friedman fed him in advance, kept a carbon copy, and then mailed the original to himself by registered mail. This would provide a sealed envelope with a date prior to the program's broadcast, proof that the questions were provided before his appearance. He did this throughout his stint on 21. Snodgrass would prove to be an unusual contestant for another reason, deliberately refusing to lose after being told that his time was up and he needed to answer a question incorrectly. But on the May 20th program, he correctly answered questions he was supposed to miss, forcing a tie. The producers were then wary of Snodgrass and no longer provided him with answers or even pregame meetings. Although they didn't know it at the time, this limited Snodgrass's ability to pre-mail answers to himself. He ultimately lost to Bloomgarden on June 3rd, but walked away with $4,000. Snodgrass would eventually testify to all of this in front of the grand jury and also provide three sealed envelopes verified by a police laboratory that contained the questions as he described them. Although Stone got several other high-profile contestants to admit to rigging in front of the grand jury, other successful contestants from 21 denied receiving help. By October of 1958, Stone and his investigators met with Charles Van Doren in preparation for his grand jury testimony. By now, the scandalous and frequent headlines had irreparably damaged the credibility of television game shows, with 21 being canceled on October 16, 1958, 
and the $64,000 question a month later. During this meeting, Van Doren denied that Al Friedman had helped him prepare for his television appearance. Stone concluded this interview with an ominous comment. You can lie to me, but I'm not going to let you lie to the grand jury. Thank you for listening to part one about the quiz show scandal. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Primetime and Misdemeanors by Joseph Stone and Tim Yohn, and Remembering America, A Voice from the 60s by Richard Goodwin. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also, please access over 50 episodes on iTunes and leave a review if you have the time. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.